0: Receipts live show at Tudum.com slash W-H-T-R. That's Tudum, T-U-D-U-M dot com slash W-H-T-R. Tickets are limited. If you can't make it to the show, we still want to hear your beautiful voice. Leave us a message at speakpipe.com slash we have the receipts. You may even hear your own voice on the show. Grab a ticket at com slash W-H-T-R. And we'll see you on May 4th in Los Angeles. Bye, cashiers.
2: I'm Rebecca Lavoy, and this is You Can't Make This Up. You Can't Make This Up is the podcast where we uncover the true stories behind your favorite Netflix documentaries and films. On today's episode, we take a closer look at the Netflix documentary series, Our Great National Parks.
1: I wish everybody had the chance to visit a national park, to experience the sheer joy and wonder of nature.
2: Today, we're talking to executive producer James Honeyborn and series producer Sophie Todd. Since Yellowstone became the world's first national park 150 years ago, today, 4,000 national parks now exist around the world, protecting nearly 15% of the world's lands and 8% of our oceans. What began as a desire to create a place for all to experience and enjoy the natural world has grown into a worldwide effort to preserve wild places for future generations. Produced and narrated by former President Barack Obama, our great national parks brims with wonder, humor, and optimism as each episode tells the story of a park, through the lives of its wildest residents, and explores our changing relationship with wilderness.
1: Join me as we explore the wonders and secrets of some of the most extraordinary national parks on the planet.
2: I'm joined now by executive producer James Honeyborn and series producer Sophie Todd. Welcome to You Can't Make This Up. (laughs) Thank you. It's great to be here.
0: Hi there. Lovely to be here. Thank you.
2: So people often think of national parks as a strictly American convention. Of course, that's a very American idea to think of things as strictly American. But that is not at all true, is it?
0: Well, um, it was a very good idea. And it was an American idea. And it all started 150 years ago at Yellowstone National Park. So um, I think that there's some ownership of the, the, the original idea, perhaps, but now they are truly a global phenomenon. In the last 50 years, half of around 4,000 national parks have been created all over the world in almost every country.
2: So what are the distinctions between national parks, sanctuaries, conservation areas? Because it's not it's not really the same thing, right?
3: There are lots of different um, types of protected spaces. That's national parks or marine sanctuaries. Um, And essentially, they're all really, really important. National parks. Mean different things in different countries too. So we, in the end, decided to talk about national parks, but we talk about all wild spaces as well in the series, all protected spaces.
0: Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think the series really is about the our, our relationship with wilderness today. But we choose national parks because they're the pinnacle of every country's uh, sort of conservation, and, and they give they give those places sort of the highest degree of protection normally. So, um, and of course, they are often some of the most iconic. And stunning and beautiful places of all.
2: And it makes a huge difference too when a government has decided, like, this space is just
3: for this and it's not in dispute anymore, right? It does make a huge difference, but then I think that they always have to be continued to be protected. Parks, uh, it's not just their creation, they have to be protected from what happens around them, and also because, you know, things change. Countries are under pressure to use these rural resources, and um, the more. And longer they're protected, the better chance there is for these places to survive.
0: Yeah, and I, I would add to that that as well. It, it's great to have government support, but you also really need the support of local communities. Parks need people, and they need the communities around them to be in support uh, for the whole for the whole idea really to thrive. So, and, and I go even further than that and say that the roles of indigenous people and traditional owners of national parks are also a really important part of. Uh, a part of the way parks thrive and work best. But, uh, but actually, in our series, what we've done is we've chosen to frame uh, this, this story of national parks through the eyes of their wildest residents, the animals that live there. Um, and it's uh, very much the story of, the an- through the animals' eyes, them sort of revealing the personality of each park we visit.
2: I wanted to ask you about that because even, I think, before the golden age of television, which is what people say we're in now, you know, nature documentaries have been event series, right? I think about shows like Blue Planet and, I mean, I was always making time to sit down and watch these shows. Families have long, you know, on PBS, been setting appointments to watch documentaries, you know, narrated by David Attenborough and and so forth. These These shows are really important. They have sort of a television legacy. How did you go about setting out to make one of these and making the distinction uh, between yours and all the wonderful media that's out there um, about nature.
0: I guess for us, this series is really a celebration of a of a great conservation achievement in a time where there's so much wrong uh, in the natural world. Uh, and, and yet somehow in the last hundred years, there's been this incredible movement building around the creation of national parks. And, uh, and it's really something to celebrate. So I think that, that in, immediately distinguishes it from um, some of the other series. And also because we've, we've seen and learned how important wilderness is to us all now. And we really want to sort of convey that.
3: Yeah, and I think this series has a real personal connection to the president and his, his views about the national parks and, and natural world are, are very strongly held. I mean, certainly he protected more um, land in, during his presidency than any other US president in history. So he, he felt like the perfect person to, to bring this film to life. Mm.
2: Yes, the series is in fact narrated by a real rookie, uh, one Barack Obama, former president of the United States. So how did these British filmmakers and the former president of the United States get together for this project?
0: Well, we were, we were introduced to Higher Ground, the president's production company, by Netflix. And uh, Higher Ground had uh, got into creative partnership with Netflix at around the same time that we did. And it quickly became apparent that we had lots of shared and common interests. So it felt like a real natural fit for us to work together.
2: Did Mr. Obama insist on there being larger themes to the series beyond fantastic photography of parks and pumas and frogs?
3: Um, I think we, we all, well, both James and I as filmmakers and the whole team wanted it to be about more than just beautiful visuals. Um, but certainly the president was quite involved with the ideas and the themes and bringing all of that together. Everything that we did, we ran past him every step of the way.
0: Yeah, we were in creative development together, really, right from conception through to completion. And uh, it became clear to us all, that we that every park has its own story to tell and that each park has its own sort of amazing conservation message as well. And one of the exciting things about this series, we feel, is that it's, it's actually inspiring because there are incredible solutions out there to improving parks and helping them thrive. And that's really the themes, I think, that you're referring to coming out in each episode. Uh, and, and hopefully across the series, we discover that there's a growing sense of, of hope and of what... Um, conservation can be and what it can look like and, and why and how wilderness can be so important for us all.
2: You seem to personalize the series for the president. You begin with him in Hawaii. I grew up in Hawaii. This
1: was my backyard. My love of the natural world began here.
2: He's discussing the parks in his father's homeland of Kenya. This was the land of my father,
1: who had passed away and who I barely knew. But I met my family. I visited the village they had come from. I felt welcome everywhere.
2: He spent part of his childhood in Indonesia.
1: My mom moved us to Indonesia for a few years as a kid. We lived in a small house with the simple joys of nature. A mango tree out front, whiffs of fruit and spices.
2: He even discussed a memorable family vacation to Patagonia.
1: A few years ago, Michelle and I visited Patagonia with our daughters. Amongst the snow-capped mountains and crystal clear lakes, we marveled at an increasingly rare thing, untouched wilderness.
2: As producers, how important was it to take advantage of these connections between Mr. Obama and these places?
3: I think, I mean, it, it's definitely important. And um, there's something actually I can tell you, is not in the series, but he and Michelle actually went through Monterey on their honeymoon and saw a whale breach. And they sort took that to be a, a good sign. So, yeah, he's connected with every single film. Um, and that... I, I, th- I think it just adds to the experience for the viewer but also because he's he has these connections he adds to the his depth of feeling in relation to the parks he's not been to all of them though it's just it's more he has an understanding of each of the places
0: when you think about it there's over 4 thousand parks to choose from how could we ever choose from that list when when each of them is kind of the pinnacle of landscape in that country and wildlife of course but really for us it was about you know we needed some way of shortening the list and so finding parks that the president did have a personal connection with uh, really helped us make a shortlist of it all. (laughs)
2: Hope you don't mind I do have some curious questions about making a documentary with the former president of the United of States course. I think anybody would um, did you have to say things like Mr. President you have to keep that blue linen shirt on for continuity for the next
3: location are those conversations you had to have no actually um, I, in advance we'd talked about what clothes would work well on camera and then on the day he came in something else because Michelle <laughs> took an executive decision <laughs> uh, uh, on what he should wear um, so that yeah we had to change. But I think um, it was pretty smooth. Yeah.
2: When the president recorded his narration, uh, was he watching rough cuts of the stories or was he reading from a script or some combination?
0: Well, we we developed the edits over a number of cuts and we polished the scripts and the president had seen all the scripts in advance and had uh, obviously approved them but read through them and added his own words um, a lot of the time. So that was really great for us because we could see these scripts evolve and really become um, part of the way that he would choose to convey this, which was lovely. So... uh, yeah, we, we wrote the scripts initially, but the president very much got involved.
2: Did you do any direction of the narration, perhaps remotely, take part in any of the recording sessions?
0: Yeah, we, we
3: set up the um, commentary records so that we could work remotely um, with the president in DC and James and I in in Bristol, um, which was quite a good fun way of working, I mean, partly because of COVID, but also it's it minimises the uh, effect on the environment of flying people around, you know, mm-hmm. we can... A lot, a lots possible technically now, and that's it's great to take advantage of that.
0: And it was fun, wasn't it? We laughed lots, which was great. It was. Um, I remember the. You know, when I think back of all those recordings, because um, we did each one separately, so that was five different sessions. Um, we laughed lots. We have fun.
2: I do have to wonder about, you know, the remote environment and the, you know, potential tension of being in the in, in the presence of the former president of the United States. Did it help when you had to say things like, you know, you really need to sell those macaws a little more, uh, Mr. President?
0: <laughs> he, he didn't need a lot of direction, did he? I mean, <laughs> the, 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 the president is so aware of the power of his own voice. He's such a natural, really. And um, it was just wonderful to see him perform. He was quite a one-take wonder.
3: Mm. When we were filming in Hawaii, I had my monitor and I was showing him the shot at the beginning. And then that was it. That was about it. We didn't have to direct him very much at all. Obviously, he's done it probably more than I have in his career.
2: There was this one wonderful moment where, as a viewer, I realized these filmmakers got the former leader of the free world to talk at length about hippopotamus poop. It was pretty great. (laughs) Yeah.
1: It might not do much for the crystal clear visibility. But this is the very stuff that keeps Mazima's ecosystem thriving.
3: He has a really good sense of humor with those fun lines in in the script and um I think as the as the series goes on, you hear that more and more it's it's really good. So what is his reaction to the completed series? I think he was very pleased with it, wasn't he James I mean.
0: Yeah, we, we believe so. Um, yeah, you know, it was a great, it was a big team effort, obviously, and it was wonderful to, to have his involvement. And he felt like, it, I think what we were so excited about was that real sense of authenticity of voice from, from a man who has preserved more wilderness than really anyone else, um, coming to talk about its importance and why why it matters, uh, why our relationship with wilderness really matters and i think that really that really comes through and that feels very satisfying to us so uh, we're, we're thrilled to have had the opportunity to work with him and um kind of relieved it all went okay
2: How do you decide which animals, which wildlife stories you'll tell once you choose uh, from the 4,000 national parks, you winnow it down to these few? How do you decide which stories to tell in these very vast places with so many stories to choose from?
3: Well, we we work with a lot of scientists and the national parks themselves uh, to get some guidance on what would be the good stories to tell. And also we want to ensure that we're not telling the same stories across each each every episode so um that's another thing that we take into a, into account and then we write out some sort of storyboards that give a sense of how each film will look and sound and which stories will be in there and then we'll decide looking at the, the whole series okay now where are we seeing repeats or where could we do something differently um and then it just all came together after that, really, doesn't it?
0: Yeah, it's all scripted and planned and storyboarded, but then the nature doesn't go and read the script, does it? So we go out planning to get one thing and we come back with something else. But I think I think um, the point you made earlier about each episode had a theme as well. You know, we we're very keen to then choose um, species and behaviours and places to illustrate that would that would relate to that theme. So each episode feels like it's telling a new and fresh story. Um, and that's important. And then within each episode, it's about the balance of of wildlife. You don't want them all to be great big mammals. You'd like some small, um, quirky animals in there as well, maybe, and some place-based sequences as well. So it's all about the balance of what makes a really uh, entertaining program.
2: I'm always really curious about this magic trick of getting really high quality video of animals and insects, large ones, small ones from multiple angles without scaring them away. I know some of it's long lens. I know some of it's got to be very close up. Um, How does this work? I know that's a big question, but if you could even share a couple of those secrets, I would really appreciate it.
3: It's a mixture of different um, skills and technology, I guess, the latest technology. Certainly the latest drones have allowed us to film things in a way that we could never have done before. Uh, and to see the world from a different perspective but also you know it's the, it's the classic skills like time we, we spend time in the field slowly getting the animals in question used to us being around slowly getting closer um, because it's not in our interest as soon as you alarm any animals and as you say they'll they'll run away so it, we, it's a very gradual process and we have an incredibly experienced team global team from many countries around the world working with us on this one.
0: You can't beat good old-fashioned field craft and patience for a lot of it, because you've just got to wait for the animals to do their thing. Um, but new technologies have really helped us, whether it's filming at night using um, low-light cameras that can even detect colour at night, or whether it was staking out uh, um, the hippo spa with underwater cameras, or... Um, staking out the tops of mountains in case a Sumatran tiger might stumble by. You know, it's, it's the, you, you invest huge amounts of time and effort just to put those cameras in for those tigers. It took 10 days walking through leech-infested rainforests to get to those mountain peaks to stake out those cameras or to then go back a couple of months later and see what we got. So, um, you know, even for just one shot, sometimes the investment in time and effort and energy is huge.
2: I am curious about those teams and the skills they must have. Um, Are these field photographers, videographers, these teams, do they also have biology skills? Do you have biology skills? Because there's got to be like a tremendous amount of understanding of what you'll encounter, the behaviors you're looking for. Um, You know, there's a lot going on there. And what if something happens with some other animal that you weren't planning to capture that might be extraordinary, that's unexpected, and you know, you have to actually capture that too. Like what kind of toolkit is present in these teams of
3: people? They're, they're all very mixed. We we have hugely experienced people. We do have two doctorates um, amongst the five producers. So uh, scientists in their own right, and um, everybody's hugely experienced. And when things change on the ground as as they invariably do, we, we always switch to plan B and then we'll come back and say, OK, so we went to film this, but we saw this instead and it was more exciting or more interesting. And then we look at the balance of the programme and see if we need to change anything else. But um, surprise is good. It keeps us on our toes, right?
0: Yeah, it does. Um, I, I'm a biologist and um, I love it when we get the chance to tell new science or uh, discover a new species even, which we did on the series. Amazingly, in Indonesia, in Gunung Loso National Park, we um, we filmed a hammerhead worm that is a pretty yes. grim and grisly creature. Uh, but had that that particular animal had never been discovered before. It doesn't even have a scientific name. So it's hugely exciting for us when we get the opportunity uh, with the scientists we're working with to discover something totally new.
2: Can you tell me a little bit more about how that happened? How- that unfolded
0: well we were we wanted to tell a story of a hammerhead worm and there's a few out there and Ipple our guide um, went out into the forest uh, looking for hammerhead worms on the forest floor and he actually found this one and he found he found there were a few and uh, they've got really unique stripy pattern on them amazing sort of black white beige stripes and this great sort of hammerhead um, it doesn't even have eyes this worm and its mouth is in the middle of its stomach but it Glides along on the forest floor, looking for slime trails from slugs and snails. And when it finds one, it follows it.
1: Wrapping around its victim, the flatworm pumps out mucus to trap it. Once the prey is disabled, it attacks the semi-slug with toxins and digestive juices, breaking down its flesh.
0: It surrounds it and envelops it with its body and then digests it through the mouth in the middle of its own Uh, of its own body. It's just extraordinary.
2: That's incredible. But kind of fun to watch. (laughs) There are so many shots in this series that I turned to my husband and said, I feel like I am watching CGI from a science fiction series or a science fiction film. The uh, Mm -hmm. orangutans with the giant plate faces. Um, The elephant seal with the giant long... (laughs) <laughs> mating, uh, attractive, supposed to be as att- attractive to ladies. <laughs> so now that it kind of lumbers across the sand. It looks like, uh, one of those puppet creatures from one of the Star Wars films. Do you ever look back at this footage and think, I cannot believe this is a real animal, even though I may have seen it myself in person?
3: Yeah, I mean, definitely. We have those moments. I, I think the, um, as you say, the cast formation, the rock formation in Singi de bimaraha National Park in Madagascar is like another planet. And, and that for me was probably one of the most uh, profound sequences in terms of just seeing something very powerful in terms of the family's journey, but something I'd not seen before in that, in that way.
0: We, you're very lucky when we've, got the, when we've got the opportunity to look at so many different parks you're going to find some extraordinary places and and uh, I think of all the landscapes that one in Madagascar is the most extraordinary um, but actually it's also very exciting just to spend time on a beach full of elephant seals and discovering that amongst the thousand or so pups on the beach there's one there who's trying to do things differently and pull off a milk heist
2: yes
1: this young criminal mastermind gets away yeah. with a Another round of feeding
0: and a head start when he first goes to sea in spring. Um, and so the more you look, the more you see. That's what's so exciting about it. But I always think uh, elephant seals. I suppose they are a bit Star Wars-y. They're also kind of a bit Enzo-y, mm. a bit muppety, <laughs> do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. uh, yes,
2: yes. They, they have a very puppety kind of. Uh, they, they both. The little ones look sweet, and the big ones look less so
3: (laughs) but that was a classic case of working with a local scientist because I don't think most of us if we'd have looked at those seals we'd have spotted Mm. that 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 was actually happening, Um, they gave us the heads up that every now and then these super wieners would come along who would just go round for a second, cheat their way to a second round of feeding and end up being these massive pups giving themselves a great advantageous uh, giving giving themselves an, an advantageous start
2: to life Another example is the otter situation, and I have a a real question about that. Here we have a place in Monterey Bay, an animal that I have seen a lot of times, uh, these otters. We learn that mom, mother otters will hide their babies when they go out for food because they have to keep them warm and dry.
1: The harbor's walkways are too busy. So the search is on for a quiet, dry place to stash them away safely.
2: You have this incredible shot beneath a dock, a place many of us have been many, many times, a common dock, inches of space in this tiny water corridor between two support beams. The mom swims through on her back, stuffs her little baby up there like a bean bag. Um, how did you get that shot? Because that's like a tracking shot of an animal doing a thing that, you know, she's sort of looking for a place to go and then she goes there. How does that happen?
3: We were, the crew were watching um, the mother for a long time for, um, and they spotted that she was disappearing under with the otter in the same place and then coming back out without him. So, once, one day when she was out feeding, we popped a camera underneath um, and left it recording in a place where it wouldn't disturb her. And um, yeah, we just left the camera there for a few weeks. And when she'd left, we went and got the camera back and uh, found the footage. So it was, it was a surprise to us in a way. We didn't know exactly where he was being stashed, but he was obviously being put somewhere safe while, we were, while she was going out to feed herself.
0: And I think actually that surprised the scientists. I don't think they knew that. That's not recorded behaviour in sea otters. So again, just by spending time out there and looking, you kind of learn new things. And it's a great chance for us to give back some of the goodwill that the scientific community gives us, actually.
2: There is this interesting balance that I think you probably have to strike. You know, you're working with scientists. There is this, you know, danger of, you know, over-anthropomorphizing animals because they are not people. They are animals, yet in order to make them relatable to viewers, sometimes you do have to relate them so that people will care and want to protect them, right? And that's a perfect opportunity to do that. A mom doing a behavior and then you have the president saying, you know, the mom gets some me time. So when you're making a series like this, where we also see animals doing things that are completely not relatable, like a worm eating a snail, how do you strike that balance between not going too far over that line of being like these animals are just like us when they are clearly not
3: just like us, um yeah, it's it's all about balance, it's about finding a mixture of stories just so that you you don't feel like you're having hearing the same story again, so we wouldn't have too many mother uh, stories in in one film. we just like we like to mix it up, really yeah,
0: I, I, yeah, I think um on anthropomorphization I, what we don't want to do is to project. Um, feelings and emotions human feelings and emotions onto the animals that we're filming but but of course we quite like it when the music does it a bit because we do want to feel that emotional connection we do want to care about them and we do want them to find their lives relatable to our own so there there is a balance as sophie says we've got to find ways of of telling their stories that, that feel meaningful to us but at the same time not project our own emotions onto them that's really what we're trying to do
2: Yeah, and there is also this balance between scary and true, right? Because you have this incredibly compelling scene of this pod of orcas chasing this gray whale and her baby whale. And it's very hard to draw that line because orcas in the wild are scary. But that is true (laughs) that they are scary. But they also need to eat.
1: This one whale will sustain them and starve. Has passed on the skills her family will need to survive.
2: Is this, when you're filming a scene like this, do you, are you trying to make it a hero and villain story, or are you just trying to keep it neutral and show, this is what happens, this is how animals eat, and it is scary, but it is also true.
3: I think I think we empathize slightly with the orca, because obviously... As you say, they have to eat and uh, they've got a new baby in the pod. And it's really important that they find food at that time. Otherwise, you know, it would be very bad for them. But of course, hunts are by their nature quite violent events. But if you're going to make a film about nature, you have to f- reflect the reality. You, you can't sugarcoat it. Um, and and that's what we do. We just show the way things unfold.
0: I think the important thing is to be sensitive and to be sensitive to the viewers um, to portray the truth of nature without making it dramatic, mm-hmm. on one hand and without over-sanitizing it on the other. We, we, we want to reflect what happens, but we're not going to dwell on the gory bits. Um, we don't need to see that, you know. Um, yeah. And we want it to be uh, family-friendly viewing, but it, of course it does have to you know, represent the realities of nature as well. And uh, pre- predators need to eat.
2: Do you sometimes get footage like this and then show it to other scientists and they say... Do you guys have any idea what you have here? Like, this is extraordinary. You you may not know this, but what you have here is unbelievably extraordinary.
0: Yeah, no, definitely. We, we share our material with scientists wherever we can. And sometimes it even goes on to, they go on to write papers about the stuff that we've seen. So uh, I you have to, I, our responsibility, I guess, as filmmakers is we're spending a lot of time out there in the world. And it is possible and likely that we are going to see things that haven't been seen before. So at least we get to document them on film. And if we get a chance to share that with a scientist, community that's a real added bonus for us
3: yeah i mean we we share not only the finished film itself but we, when we're working with some scientists uh using their permits or working with their permits then we show them all of the rushes so that they can see everything that we've shot because it might be something that maybe isn't that significant necessarily to us for the series but could be hugely significant to their work and it's a real privilege to be a part of it
2: so we see a lot of um Success. And I'm sure what is a lot of pressure sometimes on these filming schedules in Indonesia, for instance, we see a plant that flowers for two nights once every 10 years. It (laughs) smells like a corpse, by the way. I imagine there's a tremendous amount of pressure to get there on time to capture it. Uh, What is that like? And are there times where it doesn't work out the way it's supposed to?
3: Yeah. <laughs> yes, there are always times when it doesn't, but we, we try and minimize, minimize those times by planning everything as much as we can in advance. We research everything as much as we can in advance. And then we'll be working with people on the ground trying to find the signs to know that when that plant's going to start growing so that we can mobilise quickly and be there in order to capture it. And we know obviously in advance that it's only going to bloom for these two days and that we've got 48 hours to capture this story from start to finish.
1: Channeling 10 years of stored energy, the Arum pumps heat into its central column, becoming as hot as blood, like a chimney. Rising heat carries its stench up into the cool night air. For hundreds of scavenging insects, the draw is irresistible.
0: Yeah, the good thing is, before it flowers, it creates a giant bud. And that gives you time to find one and plan what you're going to do. And and what we did, because we were stuck over back in the UK because of the pandemic, was we built a half-life-size model of the inflorescence, the, the flower-like structure. Uh, we built it out of papier-mâché, painted it up, and then did camera moves around it so that we could send those out by email to Indonesia to show our local team the sort of shots we thought would really work with it. So, um, you know, that allowed us to, to still plan it in great detail, to prepare, and then when the time was right, we got it.
2: Now, the series is told through the point of view of animals, as you mentioned, but there is, of course, the specter of humans throughout the series, the highway through the park in Kenya, the visitors in Yellowstone, the theme of climate change and the message of conservation at the end. There's no more time
1: to waste. The world we leave to our children is too important. The time to act is now.
2: What do you want the millions and millions of viewers who are going to see this series on Netflix to take away?
0: Well, for me, it's really about the value of wilderness today. And it's becoming increasingly precious and important. And we need to value it more. And wilderness needs us. It needs people. And so this relationship with people and our active involvement in wilderness feels really important. And those are the sort of take-home thoughts that we hope will come out from across the series. As as we start in, in the first episode, we kind of see what wilderness really means to us and what it means to us today and the impact it has on all our lives. Um, And then in each of the following episodes where we visit one particular park and take a deeper dive into that park, we learn about different things that that, that help wilderness thrive. And we see some of the practical solutions uh, and the agency that we're bringing to, 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 to living with wilderness. Um, and if viewers would like to find out more, they can check out wildforall.org, um, uh, where we have some active uh, solutions for viewers who, who feel they've connected and cared with the series and want to find out what they can do to help.
2: Executive producer James Honeyborn and series producer Sophie Todd, thank you so much for joining me to talk about your series. It was a gorgeous journey around the world and I really loved watching it. Thanks again.
3: Thank you so much. Nice to meet you, Rebecca. Thanks, Rebecca. Bye bye.
2: That's it for this week's episode. Thanks again to James Honeyborne and Sophie Todd. What was your favorite sight to see? Was it those leaping lemurs? The surfing hippos? Maybe a dwarf mongoose? Tell me in a tweet. You can send it to me at RebLavoy. For more of my takes, check out my other podcast, Crime Writers On. Each week on that show, we break down the latest in true crime documentaries, films, podcasts, and pop culture. If you like You Can't Make This Up, please rate and review this show and share it with your friends. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. And make sure to subscribe to the show to stay tuned for all new episodes. And if you want more explorations of nature, check out another podcast I work on. It's called Outside In from New Hampshire Public Radio. Our music is by Kelly Mack at Netflix Music Lab. You Can't Make This Up is a production of Netflix. I'm Rebecca Lavoy. Thanks so much for listening.